Here's what God's word says in Romans 11, 1 through 6. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you know, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. All right, we're in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 this morning as we continue our way through the book of Romans. Romans 11, 1 through 10. And we'll be talking about the people of God both today and next week in particular. I suppose generally we're talking about the people of God or the work of God among his people. But in particular today, we're talking about the people of God. Today, we're thinking about Israel and our relationship to God through the gospel, and next week we'll be thinking about what it means to be a part of the people of God, Israel and the church, grafted in, all kinds of fun stuff. You'll want to be reading ahead on that one. The people of God is the title of the message today. If you read your Old Testament, you're going to discover very quickly that to be related to God, to know God, have a relationship with God at all, in the Old Testament, you had to know and be a part of the people of God. If you wanted to go worship at the temple, you had to be of Israel. You had to be connected to the temple through a priest and through a representative. To, to relate to God occurred through and as a part of the people of God. And you can think of some folks who weren't uh, of the people of God by, by birth and how they later became connected to the people of God. A couple of names that you're familiar with. Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. She came to faith in God and recognized that God was the God of Israel and God had redeemed the people of Israel out of Egypt. And she uh, hid the spies in her home and said that when Israel invades Jericho, she wanted her life spared. And they did. Everyone who was in her home was spared. She then became a part of the people of God. And she was also, it was uh, of her descendants that King David came as well as the Messiah. And so she became, uh, through a belief in God and became a part of the people of God, Israel, and so therefore also was a part of the line of the Messiah. Another one that I think of off the top of my head, one, another one of our favorites, is Ruth. Remember Ruth? You don't remember Ruth? Okay, of course we all remember Ruth. Okay, Ruth was a, a not born in Israel. She was not a, an Israelite. She was bo- born in the land of Moab. She was uh, a Moabite. And, uh, and so a Moabite, among many others, that was a real problem. But she married someone from uh, an Ephraimite in Israel, and, and eventually she was widowed and moved back to uh, Israel with her mother-in-law, and she fell in love with and became married to a guy named Boaz, right? A great, the great romance in the Old Testament, right? And we know that over time, she uh, was, became a part of the people of God. 
as a function of her already existing faith in God. So she believed in God. She told her mother-in-law that before they even moved back to Israelite. Far be it for me. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Your God will be my God, Ruth says uh, to her mother-in-law Naomi. And so then she goes and her faith then is experienced and expressed by becoming a part of the people of God. She marries Boaz, then Boaz and a few generations later has who? King David. And so she became a part of the people. So in the Old Testament, we must understand this. If you've ever read your Old Testament at all, to know God, to relate to God by faith is to be part of what? The people of God. Guess what? That didn't change at the cross. That didn't change in the New Testament. It didn't suddenly become to be a part of, to know God uh, was to become a part of the people of God. And now that we have the gospel, uh, now that we have Christ dying on the cross, now to know God, I do that all on my own. Me against the world with Jesus, right? Actually, it turns out, no. The people of God, to relate to God is by definition to be a part of the people of God. That has, has never changed. That has never changed. So we're going to look at the people of God in two ways this morning. Verses 1 through 6, we're going to understand that the people of God, the people of God experience His grace. Verses 1 through 6, the people of God experience His grace. And then in verses 7 through 10, we're going to recognize that the people of God together stand in righteousness. So let's start with verses 1 through 6, talking about the people of God and they're experiencing God's grace. I don't know if you've ever had this happen. Maybe some friends of yours go on a trip together. You know, certainly they invited you, but because of work obligations, you weren't able to go. So then you're all getting together as a group of friends again, and these uh, your friends start chatting about the trip that they weren't on, went on together, but you weren't able to go. And they're swapping stories about what happened and laughing, and, and they're trying to, to bring you up to speed on what happened, right? And you're nodding knowingly, oh yeah, that sounds... I have no idea what you're talking about, you know? You feel like a total third wheel, don't you? They're sharing an experience together, and it's funny, and, and they're trying because they're good friends, and they wanted you to go, but you weren't able to go. They're trying to bring you up to speed and let you be a, a part of that experience, and it's just not working. You feel like you're an outsider because you didn't have that same kind of experience. Well, what's the shared experience of the people of God in Christ? The shared experience of the people and God of God in Christ is God's grace. The experience of knowing God as being full of grace, God being full of kindness, unfailing love. The experience of God's grace is one of, if not the most, defining characteristics and realities of the people of God. The experience of God as a God of grace the experience of God's grace day in and day out, not just when we get saved, but day in and day out is one of the primary defining characteristics of being part of the people of God. So let's look at it just quickly and understand how this argument is made from Romans 11, 1 through 6. Here's what he says, verses 1 and 2. I ask then, has God rejected his people? He's talking about Israel. Has God rejected Israel? And Paul says, by no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, excuse me, excuse me, whom 
he foreknew. So God has not rejected his people. Just real quick history lesson. That's what you're glad you got up this morning for a history lesson, right? Yay. Here we go. Who were the people of Israel? Sons of Abraham? No. Abraham had Isaac, but he also had Ishmael. So not everybody who's the son of Abraham is is of the people of Israel. How about the sons of Isaac, right? Sons of Isaac are the people of Israel. No. Isaac had two sons. He had Jacob, who later was called Israel. He also had red, hairy Esau, or as we like to call him, Chewbacca. (laughs) So Jacob and Esau. Esau is the father of the Edomites. Jacob, though, are the sons of Jacob the people of Israel? Yes, he was later named Israel. So the people of God, the people of Israel, are the sons of Jacob. How did the people of Israel become the people of Israel? Is it because they were religious? Is it because they were fancy? Is it because God thought they had a lot of potential? Is it because they were a little bit more righteous than the people around them? Well, no, think back to it. Abraham was living in a foreign land, and we learn elsewhere in the Bible that he was a worshiper of idols. God appeared to Abraham, the idol worshiper, and said, Come, go to a land I will show you, and I will bless you. And what did Abraham do? He says he just believed him. So he followed and went where God told him to go. And what we find in Genesis chapter 12, and then it's affirmed again in Genesis 15, is God's covenant promise to Abraham. What was his covenant promise to Abraham? I will give you so many descendants, they will be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And through you, the whole world will be blessed. God made this covenant promise to Abraham. What did Abraham do to receive this covenant promise? He believed God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what was Abraham experiencing there? He was experiencing God's grace. The relationship with Abraham was initiated by God. The relationship with Abraham was made possible by God's gracious covenant promises. And what Abraham did was experience God's grace by trusting him. I believe you, God. And so the people of God, the people of Israel have always been, from the very beginning, a people of God's grace, called by his initiative, called by his promises, and called by his steadfast love, not anything they did to deserve it. All the people of God needed to do was respond by faith. So the Apostle Paul says, listen, I am of the people of God. He outlines sort of his credentials. He is an Israelite from Abraham, in particular the tribe of Benjamin. Now if you remember, Jacob had a number of sons, 12 of them uh, or so. One of his sons was Benjamin, and each one of those sons was one of the tribes. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul connected his, his physical lineage to the people of Israel through Benjamin, but his connection to the covenant promises of God was by what? Faith. And he is saying, God has not set aside the people of Israel. The people of Israel still relate to God the same way they always have. How? By faith in the covenant promises of God. Look what happened, though. Verses 2, 3, and 4. Do you not know that the scripture talks about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. What do we call that in theological terms? Pity party. That's what you call that. I'm all by myself. 
Yeah, we've never done that. Verse 4. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So what was happening, and this is occurring in 1 Kings 19. You can go and read that story uh, another time if you like. 1 Kings uh, 18 is the great uh, battle at Mark Carmel. In 1 Kings 19, uh, Elijah flees for his life because Jezebel promises to kill him. He runs out into the desert and he nearly passes out from uh, thirst and hunger. And God's uh, angel provides him bread and water and a nap, which some of you are enjoying right now. And then he complains to God, look, God, I am doing your will and your people have rejected you. And I am only left. And God says, no, 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 you have failed to recognize I am always working. My grace is always working. You didn't see it in the vast uh, hordes of Israel. Yes, they have rejected God and they do not trust God. However, God says, by my grace... I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not worshipped Baal. So you've got these 7,000 people who are still worshippers of the Lord. Why are they faithful worshippers of the Lord? Think about it. You've got this huge nation. They have completely abandoned God. They are worshipping in temples where there is temple prostitution. They are sacrificing their children on altars to Molech. They are doing things. In fact, God describes the people of Israel at this point in their history as worse than the people of Canaan that came before them. So why did God, uh, what did those 7,000 people do in order to be reserved by God to be faithful to him? What did they do? Nothing. They trusted God. In fact, God here is saying, it is because of my actions that they have been reserved for me. God is saying it has been my initiative that these 7,000 have been set aside to be faithful to me even times of great darkness. So even as Israel as a corporate entity, as a country was rejecting God's, by God, rejecting God's grace, God had reserved for himself a people who would worship him based on his initiative of grace. This is a remnant who was experiencing God's grace that God had uh, called them out of, not the world at large, but called them out of the disobedient people of Israel to experience uh, His grace. Okay, let's look at verses 5 and 6, if you don't mind. So too at the present time. What just happened? He's now applying to our time what we see in the people of Israel. In the people of Israel, most people had rejected God's grace. And God, by His initiative, reserved a remnant. No, 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 these guys are mine. And they're responding to my grace by faith. And now he's saying, it's the same way today. Paul is saying that in the first century, and he's saying that for us. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God's people today are those who who God's grace has captured their heart, and they say, I believe you. I believe you are a God who redeems sinners like me. I believe, God, your grace is sufficient. For someone such as me, God, I trust that you, in fact, are merciful, and I trust that what Jesus did on the cross pays for my sin. I trust that Jesus is alive, and so one day I will live forever. So the same thing is happening today. God has reserved for himself a people by his grace, chosen by his grace. Why does God have to choose this by his grace? You know the definition of grace? Have you thought about that? If you're an Awana, you have, because it's one of the things you have to memorize. If I remember right, the Awana definition of grace is undeserved favor and kindness. Undeserved favor and kindness. I think that that's adequate. 
What's the first word of that definition? Undeserved. Let's just be clear on definitions. This is not sort of deserved. This is not mostly undeserved, but God sees my potential. It is completely undeserved. Maybe we can illustrate it this way. I've said this before, but this is connected with Ezekiel. We say God saves dead people because that's the only kind they are. But we like to think we're sort of zombie dead, like we're reaching out to God just a little bit. I mean, the flesh is hanging off. That's gross. But if we understand Ezekiel and the picture it's painting of God's work to save us, we're dead like a skeleton in the sand where the, the bones aren't even moist anymore. They've been bleached out and dried out for millennia. We're that kind of dead, and we're not reaching out. We're just getting buried in the sand, and God reaches out and puts flesh on our bones by His grace alone, completely undeserved. So it's the, the same way today. God has chosen a people by His grace. To be a person who has received grace by faith is to be a person that has been rescued by God, and God always rescues people into his people of God, those who have experienced his grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you have to work for God's relationship, relationship with God, it is not grace. If you have to earn it, it is not grace. And the Bible is making clear the only way to have a relationship with God is by the grace of God working in our hearts. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I think this is a familiar passage. It might even be up on the screen. I don't know. This is counterintuitive for us. Matthew chapter 7, 13 through 14. Here's what it says. This is Jesus speaking, a little figure of speech. Enter by the narrow gate. How do you get in? Narrow gate, okay? It's not a trick question. It's the narrow gate. And you're saying, well, what's a narrow gate? As compared with, the, the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. Okay, so we have a comparison here. We have a narrow gate and we have a wide gate. And the comparisons are basically this. The way to go is the narrow gate. By comparison, or by contrast, we might say, there is a wide gate, and the wide gate is what? Easy. So what does that mean the narrow gate is? Yeah, hard, or at best, not easy. The wide way that is easy leads where? Destruction. So therefore, the narrow gate ends to not destruction. The wide gate has many entering it. The narrow gate... Not many entering it. They did a study. We've talked about this before. They put three people in a room, and they were given math questions. Math. Like, there's, you don't debate math. You know, for me, two plus two is five. That's my truth. Um, the two, peop- two of the people in the room were in on it, and they would agree together to, on the wrong answer. Most of the time, the third person would choose the wrong answer. In the face of obvious mathematical error, most people will go along with the others 
on math questions, not questions of morals or ethics. That's a, that's a whole other ball of wax. It's just math questions. Most people will go with, in this, in this verse, what? Go with the many. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are 7,000 men who have not bent their knee to Baal. They are the remnant. We see this all throughout the scripture. Most do not find him. Why is it hard? This seems a little bit counterintuitive because... It's grace, right? We're saying, well, you know the Lord by grace because he's loving and he's merciful and he's kind. How could it be that, that few people would want to know God by grace? It seems like, I mean, we're selling something for free, aren't we? Doesn't it seem like everybody should want it? Why is it a remnant? Why is the way of grace in Christ, listen, rejected by most people in history? Most people will reject the way of grace in Christ. Why is that? A couple of reasons why. These are my opinion. And I always say this, I'll just remind you again, you can disagree with my opinions because I always say, in the United States, you are free to be wrong. Now, that's terrible, that's rude. First reason why grace doesn't work for us, number one, is because it's exclusive. Because the Bible is quite clear. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way. That article there is very important. Not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through. But I have a really good Mormon family member. And and you know, if, if you can't get in being Mormon, I don't think you can get in. Hey, I'm sorry, but I've read their book. The Jesus they talk about is not Jesus. It's a different guy and it's made up. I'd say I don't want to offend you, but I think I, Jesus is offensive when you think you have a way to heaven and Jesus says, I don't think so. I'm the way to heaven. Yeah, but I have some really good moral friends. They're not bad people. They're good people and they go to church Christmas and Easter every single year. And, 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 and they said that when he was a little kid, he was five years old at Bible release time in kindergarten, he prayed a prayer with a leader. The only way to heaven, the only way to access God and have a personal relationship is Jesus alone. Most people in the world will find that extraordinarily offensive. Second reason. That grace is offensive because grace makes God's will preeminent in my life. Grace means I want God's way, not my way. If I'm going to admit that I need grace, what do I have to admit? I'm a sinner and I don't deserve it. If I'm admitting I'm a sinner and I need God's grace, I am by definition admitting God's way is better than mine. Most people want relationship with God as a function of religion, and what religion is designed to do is do whatever I need to do to finally convince God to do what I want. If I give X amount of dollars, if I volunteer X amount of time, if I promise to say, not to say the 10 worst bad words, if I promise not to lose my temper, if I promise to never go over the speed limit by more than seven miles an hour, I don't know, whatever your list is. 
If I do these 10 things, God will finally do the things I've been asking him to do. That's religion. Grace doesn't do that. Grace comes to God and says, everything I think I need, I realize I don't. What I need, God, is your way done. So one of the reasons we don't like grace is it doesn't provide us any leverage over God to finally figure out, God, I know what I'm talking about. I know what ought to be. To experience God's grace the way Abraham did, God shows up in your hometown and he says, you're leaving. And Abraham Abraham says, oh, I get it. My way doesn't work. I need to follow God's way. So one of the reasons we don't like grace is because God's will is preeminent. Third reason we don't like God's grace. Because obedience is no longer a way of being awesome. Obedience is a way of saying God is awesome. Religion says really obedient people are awesome at religion. And you can get little pins, right? Maybe. Someplace. We don't give out pins, do we? If we ought to. Maybe that would work. I don't know. We, can, we, can, we, we, we decide by religious obligation, I can feel good about me. And I can be important among a group of people because I've got to dialed in on certain key metrics in my life that I'm going to make sure everybody knows about. Uh, the, usually it's things I don't do and things I must do. I don't uh, do these 10 awful things. I don't frequent these establishments for entertainment. I don't consume these kinds of delicious meals or beverages. I don't hang out with people who do those kinds of things. Or the things I also do. I give money to to charities. I volunteer. I discipline my children. Let's go down some really rude ones. I homeschool. I don't homeschool. I only send my kids to Christian school. I only send my kids to public school. These are all ways in which we decide I'm awesome and I'm going to measure up in a system of religion. And grace doesn't do that. What grace does is says, because I know I'm not awesome and because only Jesus is, I'm going to live a life of obedience as an act of recognizing, man, he's awesome. That's where obedience comes from. Obedience doesn't build me up, doesn't build my self-esteem up, doesn't make me amazing. Obedience is merely a way of saying, God is worth it. We call that worship. Where we do the things God wants because we love Him and He's great, and we say no to the things God doesn't want because we love Him and He is great. So when I wake up in the morning and I want to feel great about myself, what should I do? If I don't get to be awesome, what do I have to do? I have to be in Christ. By faith, I wake up in the morning, I'm righteous in Christ today, and I have meaning in Christ today, and I have purpose in Christ today, and I have hope in a future in who? Christ today. That's where it comes from. This is why the remnant, grace is much harder than we think. You would think grace is easy. Grace is is really hard. Grace says, I have to admit I don't measure up. Grace says, God's way is, is preeminent, and his way is perfect, and mine isn't. And grace says, I never get to earn it back but I can spend a life worshiping him. That's why there is a narrow gate. Listen, I tell you what, religion with lots of work has been working for 2,000 years, isn't it? Okay, we got to move on. Uh, Verses 7 through 10, the people of God stand righteous. Let's go back to Romans chapter 11, look at verses 7 through 10. We have some quotes from the Old Testament. 
And uh, so one is from Deuteronomy and one is from Psalms. The people of God stand righteous. In the narrow road and the wide road, the narrow way is the way where you avoid stumbling, where you avoid missing out on God's cleansing power in Christ. So the people of God stand righteous. There's what it says in verse 7 through 10. What then? Israel failed to obtain it. That is righteousness by grace. Israel failed to, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, pardon me, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says it this way. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs over. The the employees of God. How about the people of God stand righteous? I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's my introduction to this topic. Think of yourself as an employer. Maybe you know somebody who did this. They don't like their job, so they went and got a new one, right? Applied for a new job. It's a better job. Maybe it pays a little better. Hours are better. Better work, that kind of thing. So you apply at the new place. They, they make you the offer. So you go to your old job. And you didn't like your boss. You don't like your boss at all. And so you quit. But you don't just quit. You quit in the way that you can never go back. And I'll leave that to your imagination. Like you just, you burn the bridge. I mean, I mean, you don't just burn the bridge. It's you know, bridge over the river quiet, like blow that thing apart kind of thing. That, you're never going back over there again. And then a week into your two-week notice, because you burned that bridge, the new employer calls you up and says, oh, some things changed. We're not going to be able to extend the offer to you. And if you don't think this happens, you're living in fantasy land. Now you're thinking, maybe I should call my old boss up. Yeah, probably not. The employee here in their in their... Uh, in their in their joy of finding something new, stumbled over their arrogance. I have something better, so I don't need you anymore. And that they, he stumbles over the arrogance that I got something better, so I don't need you, so I can burn that bridge. So the question is, as as the people of God, how do we avoid stumbling? In our pursuit of God, in our pursuit of righteousness, how do we avoid stumbling? And the, and the answer is a little bit counterintuitive. We think the primary ways in which people stumble is in sinful behavior. Adultery, drunkenness, disobeying parents, all these sorts of things. But actually, the primary ways in which religious people stumble or followers of Christ stumble is in self-righteousness. So certainly it's a problem to be living in sin. If you want to worship God with your life, you want to say no to sin. But a more significant problem, I might suggest, is seeking to earn favor with God through self-righteousness. I might even say it this way. The great error of humankind isn't primarily evil. The great error of humankind is seeking their own righteousness. Redefining what is right according to my terms and deciding I can in my own power and strength earn my righteousness. Verse 7, this is what Israel missed out on. Israel has failed to obtain it, righteousness, but the elect have attained it. How has Israel failed to obtain righteousness? Paul has been laying that argument out all throughout the book of Romans. You cannot get righteous by law code obedience. You can't. The law was not designed to make you righteous. The law was designed to reveal you're not righteous. 
so that you would seek righteousness, which is by grace alone, through faith alone. So Israel missed God's righteousness by trying to earn God's righteousness. By contrast, the elect, they find righteousness by merely trusting God and His grace. The elect among Israel found, found faith, or found righteousness uh, by faith that comes through grace alone. Not necessarily religious. One great example of this, he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. That's important. Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews gives us a great list of very, very righteous, faithful followers of God. And one of those people is a gentleman named Samson. I don't know if you followed Samson in his journey in the book of Judges. Who's read it? Would you call this guy obedient? What are some things Nazarite, which is what he is, aren't supposed to do? Touch dead bodies. What did he do? Ate honey out of a dead lion. Gross. So other things Nazarites aren't really supposed to do. Actually, most Jewish folks weren't supposed to do. Actually, most people aren't supposed to do. Actually, all people aren't supposed to do. Sleep with prostitutes. That was his hobby, I think. Every other page, this is what he's doing. But at the end of his life, he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord heard him. Blind because his eyes had been gouged out, hair cut short, but it had started to grow back. And then he pulled the temple down on himself, and the Bible says he killed more people in his death than in his life. And the Bible says he was a man of faith. So standing there at the end of his life with his eyes gouged out, wouldn't you imagine he felt, why would God listen to him? So when he prayed, God, give me one more great act of strength, why did he think God would hear him? Because he knows what God is like. God is gracious and kind, and his love never fails. And, And Samson knew something many of us have failed to understand. God is gracious, and if we'll trust him, he'll hear us. And God responded to Samson's prayer, and he had one final act of strength on behalf of the people of Israel. So Israel failed to obtain righteousness that it was seeking through law code following and missed righteousness which comes by grace alone. Verse 8, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 29 and also a bit from Isaiah. God gave them a spirit of stupor that they couldn't see. They couldn't see what God was up to. Think of some of the things that God did for them. They walked through the Red Sea. They ate manna for 40 years in the desert. There was numerous military victories that were only explainable by God's powerful hand. So all of these things were happening in front of their eyes, but they missed it because they wanted to earn God's favor instead of just merely receiving God's favor because he is gracious. They became hardened and missed God's righteousness and sought their own purposes. Look at verse 9, quoting here from Psalm 69. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. The enemies here are opposing righteousness by seeking their own righteousness instead of God's. David here is saying, these who are seeking God on their own terms, he's saying, may their ways of seeking God become a trap and a stumbling block, which it indeed became. Finally, this, and then we'll close with just kind of two or three applicational thoughts. The power of the righteous remnant, the power of the righteous remnant comes through standing righteous in Jesus by faith in the face of opposition. We live righteous by faith 
devoted to God uh, uh, through righteous actions and saying no to sin and, and seeking to obey God as an act of affection, as an act of worship, as an act of servanthood to God. But the people of God, the righteous remnant, don't seek obedience to God to earn his favor. We don't seek obedience, God, to try to get him to answer uh, our prayer the way we want him to answer it. We don't seek obedience, God, to try and rank higher on the social structure of a body of believers. We seek to do these things by faith because God is gracious uh, to us. I want to look at one last parable as a way of closing. Matthew 18, it's not going to be up on the screen, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus' basic answer was just never stop forgiving him. And he compared the kingdom of God to two servants. One servant owed a king an enormous amount of money, billions and billions of dollars, we might imagine. He didn't have the money to pay, and he was going to be incarcerated for his whole life till it could be paid off. And, and the king finally says, forget about it. You don't, owe, you don't owe me anything. And this servant who's been forgiven billions and billions of dollars goes out, and he finds uh, another servant who had taken his $5 gift card to McDonald's. And he starts beating him up. I want my $5 gift card to McDonald's and McRib is coming out. I mean, this is serious business. This isn't, we're not playing here. And, uh, and the other guy say, don't worry about it. I'll get you one. I, don't, I just don't have any money on me. I got to go to the ATM. And, uh, and he goes, no, forget it. And he beats him up. And he has him thrown into prison. And so here you have this, this servant who's been forgiven a debt that could never be repaid. And something was lost on him because he couldn't then offer that same graciousness to another servant. Here's what we have to understand. The fuel for righteous living in community of the believers is that sense of forgiveness. Maybe we can put it this way. Have you ever found it challenging to live in the body of believers, the church? Come on. Right? People are funny. That's the way I say it. Okay? And none of you. We're talking about second service. I could finally put up with that church if those people would finally get their act together, right? That's what we think. And you would never say it out loud. That's my job to say it out loud. If so-and-so or if that pastor or those elders or those deacons or that Sunday school teacher or that Yahoo, whoever's bothering you, they would finally get their act together, I could halfway deal with that place. But the parable paints the picture differently. We can finally deal with that place when we finally get our head around how much we've been forgiven. That's the economy of the people of God. We don't get along with one another when the other people around us finally figure out we're right. We get along with one another when we finally figure out how much we've wronged the king. And when we, when we come to that realization of how much we've, been wrong, we've wronged the king, we start being able to put up with a whole lot of other stuff because that's just the $5 gift card. The conflict within the body of believers is primarily, I would just say 99% of the time, primarily a lack of understanding of how much grace I've received. For me, that's the case. When I get frustrated with others in the body of believers, second service, right? It's primarily a function of me thinking I'm not forgiven for that much. That's why this person's annoying me. However, when I finally come to terms by the power of the Spirit of how much Christ has forgiven me, all of a sudden, what's going on around me is a lot less of a deal. 
This is why we say the people of God, the shared experience of the people of God is God's grace. Second thing, religionists need to be aware. False righteousness is more deadly than known sin. I know that's controversial, and there may be ways in which we need to make exceptions to that, but I'm just going to say it that way to, to make a point. False righteousness is more deadly than known sin, because known sin I can repent. God, I'm sorry. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I need your forgiveness. False righteousness is me thinking I don't need to repent. It's an arrogant sense of self-righteousness will result in me missing grace. The remnant here, if we pay attention in both the body of Christ in, in Romans 7, as well as the remnant in 1 Kings 19, is not the small remnant in the world, it's the small remnant in what is otherwise people think, who think they're of, of the people of God. And what he's saying here is religionists need to beware. False righteousness is more deadly than known sin. Finally, this, the narrow gate. Don't be fooled. The way of grace is access to God, but it is the narrow gate, and it is hard. So if we're thinking the way of grace, the narrow gate, even though it's a free gift by the gracious and faithful act of Christ in our lives, we must also recognize it's not the easy way. Our default would prefer rather a works-based righteousness rather than righteousness that is by grace alone so let's not be fooled the way of grace is a way that's hard it means today i need to admit again how much i need grace it means i need to extend more grace to others than i have been it also means that we'll experience suffering as a part of god's grace to us the people of god experience his grace and stand righteous by god's grace